capturing the moment, I want to talk today about a holy God. And to set it up, I want to give you a couple of statistics that are human. One of them is 80% of what happens in a church's life happens on Sunday morning between 9 and noon. If you don't come to church, you feel like you missed something. And chances are what you did miss, you're going to get it between 9 and noon. And I say it's not just the 10 to 11 o'clock hour. For some, it's coming early and, and getting set up for the worship practice and hearing each other's voices. And you say, I really love this. And, and it's all good, but I love this. I'll miss this when I don't do it or if I don't get to do it. For others, it's standing at the doorway watching people come to church and greeting them with a handshake and a smile and a hug and say, welcome to Calvary. And part of what you profit from is just this whole opportunity to engage with people. For others, there's behind-the-scenes service that you feel good about giving. You set up the coffee, you clean up after coffee, and maybe you get a word of appreciation. Maybe you don't, but you don't do it for that word. You do it because it's your way of serving God. And so there's that sense of, I just love coming here. And then there's this sense, this hour, this 75 minutes where we gather together and you say, I love seeing that young girl sing. I watch her face. And yes, I'm listening to her, but I'm watching how she carries out her life. It enriches me. Or maybe it's something a visiting guest shared today about justice and children. And it quietened in your heart to the point where you're like, whoa. And you'll think about it going home this week. Or maybe it's the sermon. The truth is 50% of what happens in this hour is locked into a preacher standing up and bringing some kind of message that touches your life. And sometimes it's exactly what the preacher talked about. You say, that was so bang on, bang. But other times it's, as he was saying that, I start thinking about this, and I wrote a note to myself, because God uses the words of the preacher sometimes directly and indirectly. And then there's times when the preacher is going somewhere where you can't go because you haven't a clue where they're going. <laughs> and so you and God meet quietly in your own spot. And you begin to write notes to yourself or think thoughts to yourself. And you say, I'm so glad I came to church today because I never would have thought this if I'd been hustling around Coquitlam Center Mall for an hour. <laughs> or I knew I never would have thought this if I hadn't gotten out of bed and come to church. And so there's something very, very special about coming to church that nurtures your soul. And it happens in such ununderstandable ways. Sometimes it's the word of someone who greets you afterwards and recognizes you and calls you by name. You think, wow, I, I belong here. Yes. This is a community. And one of the definitions of community to me is you are missed when you're not here. And so next week, somebody says, hey, I missed you last week. Oh, you did? Really? I did. Yeah, we're a community. And one of the definitions of community is you are missed when you're not here. 
Uh, over the years, uh, I pastored churches, and I took seriously the words of John 10, a good shepherd knows his sheep by name. And it's harder the larger a congregation gets, but I think it's desirable that a pastor can, hey, John, good to see you. Uh, Marianne, missed you last week. And it's not punitive, it's caring when they say we missed you. And yet, at the very core of what a preacher does on a Sunday morning, he or she stands up and says, I want to bring today, today a message about God. So that's what I want to do. I want to talk to you today in a message. And the message is biblical, and it's relevant. It's from the book, it's for you. And the mark of a good sermon is, oh my goodness, he was grounded in the scriptures, but oh my goodness, I feel like I need to do something as a result of it. And so today, I want to talk to you about, first slide up, a very specific sermon, I want to talk about God, which is probably a good thing for a preacher to do on a Sunday morning. <laughs> we could talk Canucks, but I don't want to talk Canucks this morning. We could talk politics. I don't ever want to talk politics. It drives me nuts kind of thing. We could talk about my grandchildren, but that wouldn't be that profitable for you. I think when you come to church on Sunday, you want to hear a message about God. And so today I want to talk about God. And more specifically, I want to talk about encountering God. Meeting God, experiencing God, coming to grips with God in the moment. We could talk about obeying God over the long haul. We could talk about learning about God over a lifetime. But today I want to focus very clearly on what it means to encounter God. And most specifically, what does it mean to encounter a holy God? The Bible says a lot about God and gives us words to describe the God we love. He is a loving God. And he is a faithful God. And he is a merciful God. And he is a redeeming God. But one of the words the Bible uses to describe God is that he is a holy God. And what does it mean to encounter a holy God? How do I respond when that happens? What do I do in light of it? I want to take you today to a passage which I consider to be one of the most explosive powerful passages of Scripture. There's many, many in Scripture, but this one is one of the ones that I deem to be that, that is almost a must-read, must-understand passage when it comes to understanding God. It's found for us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, and it's the first eight verses, and it's about when we meet or when we encounter a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 8. And I wonder if I could ask you to help me. Would you honor God today as a as a gesture of worship, would you stand with me as I read the scriptures? And so let's stand together out of respect for the word of God and to hear what he has to say. I'm reading from the New International Version, and it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Send me. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. When do we meet a holy God? What's it look like when we come across him? How do we respond to him? How does he respond to us? What do we do in light of it? Let me work through those questions with you today in our time. The opening question I want to put in front of you is, when do we meet a holy God? When? If you look in the passage today, Isaiah, or Isaiah is pretty clear. He says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died. We don't know a lot about Uzziah. In fact, for some of us who may be brand new, we think of kings in the Bible, we probably know David. Even if we know him as a shepherd more than we do as a king. We probably know Solomon as the wisest person that ever lived, wrote the book of Proverbs and some of the Psalms. We might even remember King Saul, who was a bit of a checkerboard figure. But after that, they start to get a little mushy, and we can't remember them specifically of the dozens or multiple dozens, even hundreds that are listed in the Bible. We don't get them, but Uzziah is one you probably should think about. And I'm not one who is dogmatic about this, but I'm going to put him in the top 10. Really? Yeah. He reigned for 52 years. He came to the throne when he was 16, and for 52 years he reigned really well, for the most part. Uh, he brought peace and shalom in the warring nations, so the country had a relative peacefulness. He brought some prosperity. The crops were good. People lived well. And for 30 or 40 years, Israel loved, or Judah loved their king Uzziah because he really served well. It was from about 790 to 740 B.C. But something happened in the 40th year of his reign. He did something kind of stupid. And I don't know why people do stupid. I do stupid once in a while. Why do we do stupid? I, is it because we're bored? Is it because we want to prove something? But he did something really stupid in the 40th year of his reign. 2 Chronicles 26 records it. He, he went to the temple. Remember, he's the king. And he decided that he was, he was going to do the priestly thing. He was going to offer incense and make a sacrifice. Now, he's the king, and the priests are the priests. And the kings do kingly things, and the priests do priestly things. What are you doing, Uzziah? Are you bored? You're the king. Do kingly things. It would be like you going to your automotive mechanic, and he says, well, let me just cook you some bacon and eggs before we do automotive work. And you're like, what? No, I'm not here for breakfast. I'm here to get my car fixed. 
or maybe even more stupid, you go to your medical doctor and he's examining, and you say, oh, yeah, I got a toothache. He says, well, let me see if I can take care of that for you. So he pulls, wait a minute, you're a medical doctor, you're not a dentist. And he, well, yeah, but how smart are dentists anyway? Let me do it kind of thing. And you say, this is ridiculous. The king has no business doing priestly tasks. And it was more than just competition. There was a sense of sacredness, a sense of rightness, a sense of this is wrong. Don't do something wrong. And when 10 priests came to him and said, don't do it, Uzziah, back off, he became even more stubborn and said, dang it, I'm going to do it. Watch out in life when you get stupid. And when smartness around you says, don't do it, you say, dang it, I'm going to do it anyway, kind of thing. Trust me, nothing good happens in life when you and I start getting stupid between our ears and stubborn in our hearts. And it says he went and did what he never should have done. And immediately upon doing it, it says leprosy broke out on his forehead. And because of the severe nature of the disease, he had to go into exile. And for the last 10 years of his life, he was persona non-available. He has leprosy. He disobeyed God. He, he didn't pay attention. He flagrantly said, it doesn't matter to me. And so the scripture records... In this Isaiah's life, the prophet, this is his commission. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. And I'm going to just park it here for a bit and say, is he just saying like a calendar? Oh yeah, that was the year. Or is he saying that when this significant person in our nation's life died, God showed up in a significant way? And I think it's closer to that than just a calendar statement, that sometimes in life when darkness floods us out, when we think it's the worst possible moment, God shows up in an incredible way. For some of you in the room, let's talk literal death. What was it like when your father died? Oh my goodness. What was it like when your mother died, if that be your experience? What was it like when your spouse died? What was it, God forbid, what was it like when your child died? For those that have never experienced that intensity, what was it like when your close friend died? Death has a way of just flooding us with darkness, and I want to suggest today in the midst of the darkness, there's a ripeness for God to show up. Sometimes death isn't literal. Sometimes death is the disaster of, what was it like when your marriage died? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. What was it like when you failed at that endeavor and your business collapsed? What was it like when that significant relationship deteriorated? What was it like when your health disappeared? There's all kinds of times in life that come to us where the darkness floods in. And we think we're about to be drowned by it. And I want to suggest to you that the God shows up. And the God that shows up is not a weak, mamby-pamby, whispery little thing. Sometimes he, he shows up with such strength that you say, oh my goodness. Oh. I remember a few years ago I was preaching through this idea of a holy God. And in the congregation was a young couple that had lost a child through illness. 
And I remember saying to them after church one Sunday morning, I, I, I feel like I'm preaching such hard stuff, and it's not soft, and it's not what you need. And the old pastor, please, we need a strong God right now. When God shows up in times of darkness, it's often with strength, with incredible capacity. And so God shows up in our lives. And what's it like when it happens? Well, let's keep going. There's four things that we pick up in the passage today. What happens to Isaiah? He, uh, he says in the latter part of verse 1 that I saw the Lord. And look how he begins to describe him. Firstly, he sees a God who is high and lifted up here. Verse 1. He's high and exalted, seated on a throne. The God that we serve isn't somebody that we look eyeball to eyeball with. He's higher than we are. It's not just a case that he needs to be up on the stage a little bit so people in the back can see him. He is higher than we are. He's not our equal, and he's certainly not our inferior. We are to him. And so when we gather, it is to look upwards to God as a gesture of, of recognizing who we are, that, that, that we're his. He's created us, not we created him. I'm not amongst my peers. I'm in the presence of God. I remember a few years ago, I had an audience with the Queen of England. Some of you have an English background. And lest you be overwhelmed by the thought, let's not go dramatic, there were 14,000 other people in the audience. <laughs> we were living in Winnipeg at the time, and she came for a visit. And so they, it's, only, it's Winnipeg, come on, give us a break kind of thing. We rented the hockey arena, and the Queen came and walked into the hockey arena. And I remember, because I had no or very little experience and little coaching, how do you behave when the Queen's in the room? And so it was kind of funny watching the crowd. Some were standing, some were not standing, some, some were trying to curtsy in the hockey arena. I'm like, this is really awkward. We don't do this. I said, no, we don't have a lot of experience with regality. I want to suggest to you that when you meet a holy God, and when it is God in his holiness that you meet, don't be afraid to kneel down. Regardless of what others are doing, that would be appropriate. There's something else. It says, the train of his robe fills the temple. Look at verse 2, at uh, the end of verse 1. The train of his robe filled the temple. We, we might understand that. Let me try and put it into a different example for you. We think of a train as kind of the largest part of the bride's dress. That's kind of maybe the best examples. Many of us have been to weddings, and used to be more the case than it is now, but sometimes the bride would have a, a train that would be 6 or 8 or even 10 feet behind her. You can see it in your eye. I remember when I was a young pastor one time, uh, I conducted a wedding ceremony, and the bride had a really, really long train. And it was our custom that they went to sign the registry, and so I would conduct the ceremony, and I would turn this way, and the bride and groom would walk over to the table, and I would follow them. And I remember she got about six feet away from me, and I noticed her head going backwards like this, and it was like her next, and, I'm like, and I, look, I, was, I looked out, and my foot was on her train kind of thing. <laughs> The train of his robe filled the temple. Um, the temple was not huge, huge. It was maybe about the size of this room. But the train of his robe filled the temple. And if you're standing back there, you couldn't move because you don't want to step, because you don't know. Like, when we meet a holy God, we usually don't dance a jig. Hey, we stand there paralyzed. Oh my goodness, what do I do? 
there's a third thing that's going on, and it's these angelic creatures picking up in verse 2. And we look at the strange picture. I want to concentrate on their message more than what the picture is, but don't miss it. It says that all around him, above him, were seraphim. Uh, it's a, a word meaning angelic creature. You could say angel if you wanted. It's a more specific. They have six wings, six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. They don't just kind of, hey, God, how's it going? They cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. Do you remember when Moses met God in the desert? God says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And with two, they're flying. But look what they're saying to each other. I'm in verse 3. They're calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Probably they're singing it antiphonally. This half of the room or this third of the room is singing holy. And that third is going holy. And a third is holy. And so there's just this huge choral introit of holy, 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 holy. Um, holy is the Lord Almighty. Um, I, I smile because... The scriptures give a lot of descriptions of God. I mentioned that when it began. The Bible says God is love. It, it does. John does it. We heard it in our opening call to worship that God is love. Um, it gives many descriptions, but it never says God is love, love. It, it doesn't put the, It sounds kind of weird. But what happens when they put it together, together, together? God is holy, holy, holy. There's only this reference and another reference in the book of Revelation where God is described three times in a row to emphasize. And, and where I'm going with this is the Hebrew language is both complicated and simple. They, it's complicated, but they didn't have a, a comparative superlative dimension to it. Those of you that are teachers of grammar, there's good, better, best. Okay, Hebrew doesn't have that. When it wants to emphasize something, it repeats it. And so when it wants to emphasize that God is holy, and they want to emphasize it, they say, holy, holy, holy. Do you get it? God is holy. Um, and when they use that word, we... we, we, we I feel the room go quiet because we know that that means something. It means everything that we are, God is not. God's not human. He's heavenly. He's not like us. He's different. The word means other. Um, inasmuch as we are human, God is divine. Inasmuch as that we are limited, God is unlimited. Inasmuch as we are finite, God is infinite. Inasmuch as we are doing our best to be morally good, God is pure. This God who we serve is not like our Uncle Jake, who's kind of a nice guy. He's God. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's hearing this in the midst of it all. And, and finally, it, it says the fourth thing that happens, look at verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts, and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Um, we live in a part of the world 
that they tell us it's only a matter of time till the big one gets us. How will we know the big one's coming? The floor will start shaking. The walls will start moving. The lights will start dancing. And they won't stop. And it'll get worse. Isaiah is in a situation where it says the, the floor and the doorposts are starting to shake. How do you think he feels? And then it says, the, the place fills up with smoke. I walked into church this morning, and I, I won't lie to you, well, what's that I smell? Kind of thing. And so, oh, well, I have the mat program, and we're cooking breakfast this morning. So, well, yeah, it kind of smelled like a little bit of breakfast going on. Because our smell is not inoperative. What would you think this morning if sitting in this room, you, is that smoke I smell? And then as you looked up, and it would probably be able to be seen because the lighting is a certain way here, if the room started to fill up with blue smoke, somebody, one of the elders, one of the, would, would, would say, fire! The two things we're most fearful of, earthquake and fire, and, and we would, Isaiah experiences a holy God. And he doesn't say, ah, oh, this is sweet. It scares the bejiminis out of it. This is not normal. This is not cool. This is crazy. This is so not what I'm used to. This is God. And interestingly, we in our, in our, our tradition, often we emphasize the warm side of God, the gentle side of God, the loving. And I want us to do that because we want a whole God. But let's not miss the side of God that is holy. Holy. And he invites us to experience him. Interestingly, um, if I were to kind of pick on a group of people, I think astrophysicists are arguably the closest to understanding this. They, they look at astrophysics and go like, oh my goodness, wow. We come to church and we meet a holy God. What's our response to it? Let's pick it up in verse, uh, verse 5. It says, woe to, <laughs> woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Um, how does Isaiah respond to a holy God? Well, it says he, he utters a Jewish lament. Like, whoa, I'm in trouble. It's a cross between a moan, a confession, and a tongue lashing. It's not good. He says, oh my goodness, I have seen God and I'm in trouble because I have no business being in the presence of God. And, and you say, well, you got bad self-esteem. Come on, give yourself some credit here. No, he's being honest. Who am I to be in the presence of a holy God? And you think, well, you're not that bad. I mean, you, you, there's a lot worse than you. I live amongst the people of uncle. Let's be honest here, people. None of us deserves to be in the presence of a holy God and stand. And I, I, I was saying to somebody earlier today that I take very seriously the calling to be a pastor and to live by example, and it's not that I'm rigid and bound by it, but I understand the idea that people watch and learn by our example, and people say, oh, Jamie, you're a good man. Well, thank you. I want to be a good man, but I'm not that good, okay? I'm human. And as good as you think I am, I'm not that good, good enough for God. We're all human beings, that are not that good. And Isaiah 
confesses, he laments, I'm, I'm, I'm busted. I'm done. I cannot survive. I'm going to pick on your knowledge of, of uh, Hollywood here, and I apologize if I'm showing my age. Do you remember a few years back, an, an entire generation of us were influenced by something called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, this, this, this means, yeah, I saw that picture kind of thing. There's, there's a scene in Indiana Jones, and it's put together by Steven Spielberg, uh, 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 probably schooled in the Old Testament as a person of the Jewish tradition. And it's about the lost Ark of the Covenant. And they're trying to find it. And in one of the concluding scenes, they find the Ark of the Covenant. And Indy and his team are kind of standing back. And these soldiers step in to greedily grab it. And Indy says to his cohorts, cover your eyes, don't look. And as the soldiers open the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies escapes, and this is Hollywood's version. I'm not saying it's the way it is, but, but actually I think, boy, there's something there. It says they looked into it, and in and, and Hollywood, their faces begin to melt, and their bodies begin to disintegrate because they have seen the Holy God, and they got no business. They're overcome by the presence of a Holy God. And, and that's what I want us to capture here today, that left to ourselves, we are not worthy of meeting God. I'm, I'm not near good enough. And I try and be as good as I can. I try not to be bad, but the truth is I'm just not that good to stand in the presence of a holy God. And this is not everything about God. You know there's more about God than what I'm bringing today, but this is something. Left to our own aspirations, we don't have a leg to stand on. Here, here's the next step in the journey. How does a holy God respond to us? Look at verse 6 and verse 7, what happens there. Then, and it's, it's right after he's expressed himself, one of the seraphim flies to me with a live coal in his hand. Uh, live, y'all been camping. You understand what a cookout's like. You pick up one of those pieces of hot burning wood. It's red hot. Maybe you've got an old-fashioned barbecue. You have those charcoal briquettes, you pick one up with a, you can't touch them with your fingers. You use a tong, and he comes over, and he comes to Isaiah, and he touches his mouth. He touches his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he takes this burning hot ember, and yeah, I go to Starbucks, and I'm, I'm not drinking that coffee for a minute or two until it cools down. <laughs> You give me a bowl of soup, and I'm just taking a little bit. I'm going to be careful because I don't, my lips are very sensitive, arguably one of the most sensitive parts of our human body. And this coal comes along, and he cauterizes it. He touches it. It's symbolic. It might have been painful. I, I don't know. <laughs> is it a metaphor or not? But it's true. It's touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. To put it into the whole context, Isaiah has a New Testament experience in his Old Testament day. He experiences cleansing. A holy God separated from a human being is willing to come to the human and offer a way of connecting. See, the holy God is, is also an initiating loving God. The, the, the separation is true, but the connection is also true. And don't miss the order. God initiates the connection. Isaiah by himself is done. But with God, you are never done. Because God initiates it. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I remember a few years ago, um, a medical doctor friend of mine invited me to join him in his clinic. 
And I was a pastor, and, and I said, okay, yeah, we, I could put a bandaid on if you want kind of thing. I could maybe wash the floor. He says, no, 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 you can do something that my patients desperately need and I can't provide. And uh, I said, what is that? He says, are you a pastor, a preacher, a priest, right? I said, he says, can you do that? And he's, he grew up Catholic. Some of you maybe have it. Can you do that te absolvo thing? Te absolvo. Latin for I forgive you. Because so many of the people I see medically sick, but the truth is they feel guilty about. And if we could ever figure out how to relieve people's guilt and anxieties from stuff they've done, literally, not figuratively, but things that they are crippled by, my waiting room would have half the people it has in it today. This idea of guilt, this idea of I know what I did, I know what I said, I know what I didn't do, I know what I should have done, carries with people forever. And the Christian message is, you can be forgiven. You can. I did it. I know you did. I'm not saying you didn't do it. And it was awful. I'm saying it was awful. Do you realize the pain it caused? I do. But the God of the Bible comes to you and me in his way and says, I know all about it. I know the consequences of it. And there may still be repercussions by it but I will forgive you of it. And you say, that can't be. The truth is, it is. We used to sing songs, and I love the songs we sing, and sometimes we need to remind ourselves, we need to sing songs of contrition, songs of forgiveness. Uh, The old hymns often captured it. There's one, do you remember this one? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain lose all their guilty stain lose all their guilty stain and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stain. That's the message of the Bible. A holy God does not compromise himself. Say, oh, it doesn't matter. He comes and pays for it through Christ. And I'm still a sinner, but I'm a sinner that has been forgiven. And the people that I have hurt have still been hurt by me, and it may be harder for them to be healed from it, but the truth is, between me and God, I have a clear conscience. Wow. And lastly, (laughs) what's the result? So what? I often, when I'm preaching, I listen to preachers, I say, okay, I heard what you said, but so what? Look what he says in verse 8. In the midst of all this, He hears a voice, and this is his commission, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And and we often use these words in missions contexts, and and we talk about how God's calling us and how God wants us and are people listening and is God still calling? Does he have your number? And and, uh, let's not miss the context here. It's the the context is Isaiah has had an incredible cleansing experience with God. Delivered, changed, deeply affected. And he hears God asking for a favor. That's what he hears. 
Do you remember when you're grade one or grade two or grade three? And I think it's true for all of us. At the end of the day, the teacher would have to wipe off the boards. I don't know if that was, do you remember that? When the, and that was kind of a housekeeping thing. And sometimes the teacher would turn around to the class and say, who would like to wipe the boards today? And because you had this affection for them, he or her, and it wasn't just you, but there were others in the room, you're thinking, oh, and you pick me, put your hands up, who wants to be picked? And you're like, pick me, pick me, pick me, because you have received such from him or her that it's your natural instinct to do something for him or her. And Isaiah, in the midst of having experienced an encounter with a holy God, shaken to his bootstraps, touched in the very core of his tonsils, knowing that he is free and clear, and God says, I need a favor. Um, I need somebody to do something for me. Anybody here willing to do anything for me? And Isaiah, regardless of everybody else, whoever it might be, can I do something for God? Pick me. Pick me. Here at me. Can I do something? Not even knowing what it is that he was going to do, but if God's done what he's done for me, I'm willing to do something for God. And that's the heart of Christian service. It's not... Oh, we need volunteers. Please be a volunteer. Oh, my goodness, do it. God will get you if you don't. You know, <laughs> the pastor will be mad at you. you know, it, it's anybody here willing to do something for God? Small, medium, large. And it's the people who have said, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> Trust me, it's, it's not even close to what I've received from God. I'm willing to do that. The heart of the Christian servant message is, I'm just responding to God's goodness to me. And so God looks for volunteers, and it's not meant to be a guilt-ridden, punitive experience. He's looking for people like you and me who know how disqualified we really are, but have experienced the cleansing hand of a holy God. And we can only say, pick me, pick me. And I wonder, is that you today? Is that you? Let's pray. Father, we have come together as we've done for thousands of years since Jesus was with us. And we come on the first day of the week as was the custom. We know we can meet you anytime, but there's something about coming together in a time like this that, that makes our week, shapes our week. We miss it if we don't do it. And so thank you for giving us a place to come to. Thank you for giving people that serve you and serve us and initiate our thoughts about you. Thank you for... The, uh, the opportunity to think about you and to be hearing from you in our very core. And I pray today that as you speak to our lives and you invite us to step up, step in, step on, step forward to do something for God, it would be out of that gratitudinal response. Thank you. Can I help you? In Jesus' name, amen.